Um, will you please turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6, um, verses 6 through 10. And um, Bruce is going to be uh, continuing on in his identity theft series. First Timothy chapter six, verses six through ten. This is page six sixty-eight uh, in your pew Bible. Now godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we will carry nothing out. And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. And then skipping on uh, down to uh, verses 17 through 19. Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come, that they may hold on eternal life. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, thank you so much that you're so good. Thank you that, that you are weak, or that you are strong in our weaknesses. And uh, God, thank you that, that when we come to know you, that we become a new creation, that we're adopted out of Satan's family into your family. And that all the, all the significance and all the value and all the everything that we need is found in you. God, thank you that, um, that we don't have to perform for you, but that we can respond to you in love. And that uh, you've appointed before us good things to do, but not that we do them out of obligation, but out of but out of gratefulness, out of our hearts for what you've done and for who you are because you're worthy of it and because we love you. It's in Jesus' precious and holy name that we pray. Amen. Well, that video perfectly summarizes what we are going to look at this morning as we continue in our series that we've been in for the last few Sundays called Identity Theft. And although identity theft is the fastest growing crime in America as Christ followers, the real danger is being robbed of our identity in Christ by Satan himself. And how does the devil do this? Well, as we've seen, the last couple of Sundays, the devil uses several different lies to rob us of our identity. And here's how. It's the key principle for the whole series. And it's this. It's in your notes coming up on the screen. A lie believed as truth will affect you as if it were true. And so the devil is seeking to do just that. Rob you by telling you lies. He's seeking to rob your identity. And his greatest weapon is the lies he tells us. And the first Sunday we learned that we can be pickpocketed by the past when we believe the lie that I am what I have been through. 
Last Sunday, we learned that we can be mugged by the mirror when we believe the lie that I am what I look like. And today, we're going to look at another lie that can leave you robbed by riches. And that is the lie, I am what I have. We live in a culture that worships riches and wealth. And it defines success by how much stuff you have. And so it's easy to buy into this lie. I am what I have. I am what I possess. I am what I own. But Jesus tells us the opposite is true in Luke chapter 12, verse 15, when Jesus says, watch out and guard yourself from all types of greed. Because one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And then it's interesting. Jesus then goes on and tells a story about a man who bought into this very lie. That I am what I have. The rich man, he based his whole identity on what he owned. His land, his crops, his barns, his goods. In fact, he owned so much that he said to himself in verse 17, what should I do for I have nowhere to store all my crops? So he said, I think I'll build bigger barns so I can store it in that. I think I'll take it easy, eat, drink, and be merry. And from the world's perspective, this man had achieved big-time success. But Jesus then goes on to reveal a completely different reality for him. That his life was being robbed by his riches. Look what Jesus says in verses 20 and 21. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded back from you, but who will get what you have prepared for yourself? So it is with the one who stores up riches for himself, but it's not rich toward God. Now that's a rather amazing, because what did God call him? You what? You fool. Now what's interesting, in the very beginning when he's first introduced, he's introduced his identity as a rich man. But now God reveals his identity as a fool. That's his real identity. This man thought he had a storage problem, but what he really had was an identity problem. He thought, hey, I am what I have. But in reality, God says he was nothing more than a fool. Because although he stored up riches for himself, he was not rich toward God. This man is the epitome of what Jesus asked earlier in Luke chapter 9, verse 25. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself or his life? And so Jesus' whole point in that verse and in this story is loud and clear. Basically, don't be a fool here. Don't buy into this lie. I am what I have. Don't store up riches for yourself and not be rich toward God. And so here's the question for us to consider. Am I a fool who's being robbed by riches? Or am I rich toward God? Now, the Apostle Paul shows us how we here can be rich toward God. And that's what I want to lay out before us this morning. Number one, I'm rich toward God when I follow the path to great gain. When I follow the path to great gain. What Paul writes here in 1 Timothy chapter 6 is amazing in its simplicity, but it's astounding in its wisdom. Verse 6 says, 
Now, godliness with contentment is great gain. The path to great gain is godliness, Paul says. And such godliness is not a means to something else more valuable. It is supremely valuable all by itself. In other words, what Paul is describing here for us, what he's revealing for us, is that godliness is not merely gain. He's saying it is great gain. Paul doesn't say, hey, Christian, just stop living for gain. Be miserable in this life. No, he doesn't say that. He says, start living for real gain. Don't settle for the love of riches. Be satisfied in the love of God. Be rich toward God. Now, that's a very different way to live in this culture that we find ourselves in. Godliness is great gain but only if we are content with simplicity rather than greedy for riches. We saw last Sunday in 1 Timothy 4.8 that godliness is actually profitable for this life and the next, Paul tells us. Paul says godliness with contentment here in this chapter is great gain, not godliness with craving for riches, not godliness with desiring more stuff. And so if your godliness has freed you from the craving for riches and more stuff, then your godliness is tremendously profitable in your life. Now, out of this, Paul now gives us two exhortations. It's like he comes to us, if he was standing here, and he pleads, on our behalf, and he's exhorting us, he's encouraging us, he's, he's wanting us to heed some advice that he's given to us, some biblical advice. And the first exhortation is this, be cautious. Be cautious while you're living here on this earth with acquiring excess. Why? Because you can't take it with you. Paul says in verse 7, look at it. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And so right away, these are the two undeniable, unchangeable truths about possessions. Nothing in, nothing out. Every person who has ever lived enters and exits the world in the same way. All our possessions must be checked at the grave. Doesn't matter who you are. This was true of our very first parents, Adam and Eve. They came into the world with nothing and they left the world with nothing. In fact, Moses tells us when God told Adam in Genesis chapter 3, verse 19, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. And so we get the phrase, ashes to ashes and dust to dust. King Solomon observed the same thing in Ecclesiastes 5.15. Everyone comes naked from their mother's womb, and as everyone comes, so they depart. They take nothing from their toil that they can carry in their hands. And so be cautious, Paul says, with acquiring excess. There are no U-Hauls behind hearses. We've all heard that cliche, and it is true. It's what Paul is reminding us here. But he also gives us another exhortation. It's not only just be cautious with acquiring excess, but he also says then be content with having necessities. Be content with having necessities. In fact, probably what you have is enough. If we come into the world with nothing and we leave the world with nothing, then what do we need in the meantime? That's sort of Paul's question here to us. And Paul says in verse 8, not much. 
We don't need a whole lot in this world. Notice what he writes. Verse 8, in having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. Paul says, be content with the basics. Food and clothing, and, and in, uh, clothing here actually is, uh, is a term that can be used for both clothing that we wear and shelter in which we live in. John Stott writes in his commentary, We don't need luxuries, only necessities, for possessions are only the traveling luggage of time. They are not the stuff of eternity. It would be sensible, therefore, to travel light. And in a culture of accumulation, built on having more and more and more, we need to learn to say, what I have is enough. As Christ followers, this is encouraging to me. I have to raise my hand. I struggle with this. I'm wanting more. More stuff. More things. And yet Paul, what he says is encouraging because he said this is actually possible. This is doable, in other words. As Christ followers, we can be content. And we ought to be content with the simple necessities of life. Think about it. When you have God near you and you have God for you, you don't need extra things to give you peace and security in this life. Hebrews 13.5 says, Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Paul reminds us in Philippians 4.19, My God shall supply every need of yours according to His riches and glory in Jesus Christ. John Piper adds these words, We can be content with the necessities of life because the deepest, most satisfying delights God gives us through creation are free gifts from nature and loving relationships with people. After your basic needs are met, money begins to diminish your capacity for these pleasures rather than increase them. Buying things contributes absolutely nothing to the heart's capacity for joy. So let me ask us a question here. Are you on the path to great gain? Godliness with contentment is great gain. Discontent is life's burglar. It robs your identity and it robs your satisfaction in Jesus Christ. Someone who is discontent is always operating at a loss in life. The secret of contentment is to be satisfied with Jesus Christ. The more content you are in Christ, the more you discover that godliness with contentment is what? Say it louder with me. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Not just gain, but great gain. The first lesson we learn from Paul here is, I am rich toward God when I follow this path that is laid out for me as a Christ follower. The path to great gain that flies in the face, face of our culture. And so immediately as Christ followers who are living here on this earth, we must choose what path are we going to take. What path am I going to live on? What path am I going to journey on? The culture's path or God's path? God has laid out something for us here that flies counterculture, and we must choose what we believe. We must choose how we're going to live. 
Second, I am rich toward God when I flee the road to total ruin. When I flee the road to total ruin. Paul tells us to be content with having necessities. He says, be cautious with acquiring excess. And then he tells us why. Because the desire or the craving for riches is, ru- is the road to total ruin. Look what he says here in verses 9 through 10. We're in 1 Timothy 6. He says, but, and so immediately we're in a contrast from the previous verses. The path to godliness, the path to great gain, in other words. And now he's contrasting that path to great gain, and he's going to lay out before us, if you don't take this path, here's the one you're traveling on. And it's a road to total ruin in your life. It's a contrast. Look what he says. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Paul addresses two heart issues. In verse 9, It's the desire to be rich, and in verse 10, it's the love of money. These are heart issues. It's really two ways of saying the same thing, and Paul says that both lead to a life of total ruin. The desire to be rich and the love of money. And so God is giving us, out of His gracious abundance of love for us, He is giving us a warning here for our good. Yes, it goes against the message we get in this culture, but this warning is for our good as his children. I also want to be clear here at the same time, just as Paul is very clear in verse 17, that God gives us richly all things to enjoy, right? Amen, that's a blessing. In other words, possessions are not bad in and of themselves. Paul does not say money is the root of all kinds of evil. It's not what he says. He doesn't say riches are evil. He says the desire for riches and the love of money will set you on the road to ruin. The rich man that we just looked at in Luke 12 was not a fool because he was prosperous in his life. He was not a fool because his crops were bountiful. And he's not a fool because he enjoyed the blessings of his crops and the blessings of his prosperity. He was a fool because he was not rich toward God. What Jesus says here in Luke 12 and what Paul is saying to us here in 1 Timothy 6 is so strange to our ears because we are so conditioned by our culture to always think of riches as a blessing. Now don't get me wrong. Riches are a blessing in many, 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 many ways. However, God's Word teaches that riches can also be a barrier. 
a significant barrier in your relationship with the Lord and even a significant barrier to experiencing eternal life in Jesus Christ. For example, there was another man who walked away robbed by his riches in Luke 18. When he asked Jesus what he needed to do to inherit eternal life. And knowing, Jesus, knowing that this individual was trusting in his riches rather than trusting in God, Jesus tells him in verse 22, go and sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. Verse 23 tells us, but when this man heard this, he became very sad. You know, like, why did he become sad? Because he was very rich. In response, Jesus looked at him and says in verses 24 and 25, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Which prompted some people who overheard this conversation to ask in verse 26, then who in the world can be saved? And Jesus replies in verse 27, what is impossible with man is possible with God. So yes, riches can be a barrier in your relationship with God and even a barrier in experiencing eternal life. And Paul knows this. And so he gives us now three warnings when it comes to the desire or the craving to be rich. Notice the first warning. The desire to be rich is deceptive. It's deceptive. Verse 9, he warns, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare. In other words, it's a trap. This desire, this craving to acquire wealth upon wealth. The desire for more money, more things, more riches is a trap. It's a snare. It's not people who are rich who fall into this trap, but people who want to be richer than they already are. What God condemns is people who live for riches, who have fixed their desires on material wealth and made it their overriding motive in all that they do. Their desire to be rich, Paul says, is very deceptive. The second warning is the desire to be rich is dangerous. Paul says in verse 9 that the desire to be rich leads you into many foolish and harmful lusts. In other words, what Paul is saying here, it sets you down a road that is filled with danger. Consider. Consider with me where the desire for riches may lead you. Selfishness, cheating, fraud, perjury, robbery, envy, quarreling, hatred, violence, murder, blackmail, exploitation of the weak, oppression of the poor. How many, how many marital difficulties revolve around money? The desire... The craving for riches is a breeding ground for hundreds of other sins. And Paul is kind of laying out and he's asking us, are we foolish enough to think we are immune to these things? That we can somehow avoid this danger. 
As Henry Felding said, if you make money your God, it will plague you like the devil. There's a third warning. Paul says, the desire to be rich is destructive. Paul says in the rest of verse 9 that the desire for riches, and look at his words, look at what it says in your notes there, in your Bibles. The desire for riches drown men in destruction and perdition, or as the ESV and NIV translate it, plunge people into ruin and destruction. Now that is serious, folks. Let, let, let your heart just grab onto that for a moment here. Just think, because here's the, here's the word picture that Paul is giving to us here with this. Here's the image. Just think of being dragged underwater against your own power. Somebody, you're swimming in a lake. Somebody comes up and grabs your feet and pulls you down. And you are now drowning to death. And you're trying to fight your way up out of the water. <gasps> and you can't. That's what the desire for riches does. It plunges you into ruin and drowns you in destruction. And so the desire for riches, it leads to a life of destruction. And get this, it's interesting what Paul adds in verse 10. Also to a life of self-mutilation. The language is rather startling in verse 10. Did you catch it? Look what he says. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and actually pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Wow. Three warnings that God gives to us because He loves us. And we see these warnings all over Scripture. Some of you may remember the story of Achan in the Old Testament. Achan in Joshua 7. He stole a beautiful robe because it had a designer label from Babylon. And as a result, he and his family were stoned and buried under a pile of rocks. There was King Solomon who did not even set out to be wealthy. And yet the love of money caught up with him and ruined him. Paul writes about Demas in the New Testament who wasted his life because he was, quote, in love with this present world. 1 Timothy 4.10. And then Paul warns that in the last days, people will be, quote, lovers of money in 2 Timothy 3.2. So it's no wonder that Jesus warns us then in Luke 12.15, watch out. Watch out. Be on guard. Guard yourself from all types of greed because one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. So Paul is teaching us that I am rich toward God when I follow the path to great gain and I avoid, I flee the road to total ruin. So what should we then do with our riches? Well, I'm glad you asked. You didn't know you asked, but I'm glad you did. Because Paul tells us, I am rich toward God when, number three, I fulfill God's plan for the rich. When I fulfill God's plan for the rich. Look again what Paul writes in verse 17. Command those who are what? I'll say it louder with me. Command those who are rich 
in this present age. Now, we probably ought to stop here because I'm quite sure some of you are thinking in your mind already right now, well, this verse is not for me because I'm not rich. Well, here's a little sociological insight about we as Americans. Nobody in America thinks they're rich. Rich is always one or two levels above where you are at. In a Gallup poll, people said that 21% of Americans are rich. Only 21% of Americans are rich. That's amazing in and of itself. But guess how many people said they were rich when they were asked in the same poll? 0.5%. In another Gallup poll, they asked people who had a household income of $30,000, what income would make you rich? And their answer was $75,000. They asked people who made $50,000 a year, what income would make you, quote, rich? And their answer, can you guess what it might have been? $100,000. And so we need a little perspective here. If you make $25,000 a year, do you realize you're in the top 10% of the world's wealthiest people? If you earn $37,000 a year, you're in the top 4% of the wage earners in all the world. Which means there are 96% of the world is poorer than you. And if you make $45,000 a year, you are in the top 1%. The point is this. It's all a matter of perspective. When you compare us, even the poorest of us, to other societies around the world, we definitely qualify as, that was pathetic, we qualify as what? Rich. Steve Corbett and Brian Fickert, two economic professors at Covenant College, write in their book, When Helping Hurts, and I quote, the Bible's teachings should cut to the heart of North American Christians. By any measure, we are the richest people ever to walk on planet Earth. Furthermore, at no time in history has there ever been greater economic disparity in the world than at the present. While the average American lives on more than $90 per day, approximately 1 billion people live on less than $1 per day. And 2.6 billion, that's 40% of the world's population, live on less than $2 a day. This means if you have food to eat, you are. If you have clothes to wear, you are. If you have a place to sleep at night, you are. If you even have a car to drive, you are. This also means we have a responsibility to use our riches for the sake of the gospel. And so Paul tells the rich, us, what gospel-centered generosity looks like in action. Look again what he says. 
verses 17 through 19. Command those who are rich in this present age. Now let me just stop again, this present age, which defines for us that there are some who are rich in this age who may not be rich in the next age. That's why Jesus says be rich toward God. Be sure it's more important to be rich in the next age to come and not this age. And yet, it is possible to be both rich in this age and the next. We are rich in this present age, but we also want to make sure we are rich toward God. So he says, command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, not to be proudful nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good that they may be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. And so we see the command here to us, the rich. This is God's plan for us. And it is a plan that he commands us to fulfill. Number one, don't find your security in the uncertainty of riches. There's no doubt riches can create a false sense of security in our lives. It can create a false feeling of safety. Riches can cause you to put your hope and your trust in yourself in what you can earn and obtain. You may even begin to think, hey, I'm okay. Look what I have. Look what I make. Look what I can buy. Look what I can do with the money I do make. But that kind of thinking will lead you down the road to total ruin. Riches can cause you to live like a practical atheist. Because when we find our security, when we put our hope and trust in riches, it's false worship. This is why the Bible tells us and says the number one competitor for our souls is money. It's riches. And what's so tragic about this is the fact that riches are so unstable, so uncertain, Paul says. The reality is riches are a very shaky foundation. You can be rich today and broke tomorrow, right? You can have a, quote, secure job today and lose it tomorrow. And many people found that out not too long ago. One of the lessons of this last recession was how quickly riches can just, poof, evaporate. Proverbs 23.5 puts it well. Cast but a glance at riches, and they are gone, for they will surely sprout wings and fly off to the sky like an eagle. Riches can do lots of things for us. But as pastor and author J.D. Greer says, and I quote, money can buy you a $5,000 mattress but not rest. It can buy you a gorgeous home but not a loving home. It can send you on a great vacation but it can't give you family harmony. It can buy you toys but not fulfillment. Riches can send your kids to private school but not make them wise. It can help you retire comfortably but not with peace with God. So don't find your security in the uncertainty of riches. Rather, Paul says, number two, fix your hope in God. And notice how he describes this God that we're putting our hope in. It's the God who gives us all things to enjoy. And not just gives, but gives how? Richly. 
In other words, God has blessed us. He's given us richly. And so put your hope in Him. The only safe place to put your hope is in God. To hope in God means that a person trusts in Him, believes in Him, relies upon Him in the present and for the future. And this begins when a person turns from his sins and believes or trusts in Jesus Christ and trusts that the Father will count Jesus as a sufficient sacrifice for his sins. Hoping in God for salvation, folks, listen, is just the beginning. Hoping in God, trusting in God becomes a way of living for Christ's followers like us. It is to believe the words of 2 Corinthians 9, 8. God is able to make all grace abound to you. It is to agree with Psalm 146, 5. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God. It is to apply what Jesus said in Matthew 6, 31 and 33. Do not be anxious, saying, Wait, what, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. To hope in God means that He is your supply. He is your provision. He is your security. Philip Ryken writes in his commentary on 1 Timothy, All prosperity comes from God. Daily bread comes from Him, not from one's paycheck. Tuition payments come from Him, not from a scholarship fund. Security for old age come from Him, not from a retirement account. Thus, the only place to put all true confidence is in God, in whom we have everything we need. So Paul commands us, listen, don't find your security in the uncertainty of riches. Rather, fix your hope, put your trust in God, who gives us richly all things to enjoy. And then number three, he commands us, invest in eternity. Invest in eternity, and he tells us how we do this. By doing good and being generous. You see, what happens when you hope in God and you see everything as a generous gift from Him? When you begin to lean into that truth, that practical application, and you embrace it, I'm hoping in God and everything that I have comes from Him. Here's the natural result. is a lifestyle of generosity. Here's why. True gratitude always expresses itself in generosity toward others in the Lord. So what does that look like? Well, Paul tells us in verse 18. He says, let them do good that they may be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share. Now, there appears to be four things listed here, but all four are interrelated, all four are connected and describe a lifestyle of generosity of those who have been richly blessed by God. In fact, Paul actually commands those who have been richly blessed by God to actually, this is interesting, to, quote, be rich. But he's very specific what we're to be rich in. Be rich in what? In material things? Be rich in money? 
No, he says, be rich in good works. Now, that phrase completely reverses the values of this culture in which we live. After all, everyone wants to be rich, right? I mean, ask any grade school or middle schooler already. You want to be rich or poor? And they'll just look like you. You're an idiot. Of course I want to be rich. I want to have a good job and make lots of money. I just don't want to work for it. Everyone wants to be rich, but are you rich in good works and generous? And here's how you can know. Compare how you live with how you give. And that's your answer. Yes, learn to enjoy, which is part of the secret of contentment as well. Learn to enjoy what God has richly given you, but do so from a gospel perspective, which means doing good and being generous. The book of 1 John, this is interesting, actually links generosity directly to the gospel. Listen to what John writes in 1 John 3, 16 through 18. He says, by this we know love, that he, speaking of God, or Jesus, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods, and we do, and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children. Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. The bottom line here is that a lifestyle of generosity is a reflection of our belief in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Which means if someone claims they're a Christian and they are not generous in lifestyle, that should give reason and cause. Do you really believe this? Are you really a Christian? Do you really believe the gospel? Because when we believe the gospel, it radically changes us. Now, I love this about our church because we actually have two opportunities coming up to do good and be generous. We have some opportunities to put this in practice. We have our Christmas offering coming up, and we have our adoptive families. In our Christmas adoptive families, this is something we've been doing for quite a while here at LifeBridge, and it's a tangible way for our grow groups to show Christ through good works by providing Christmas gifts and dinner to families in our church and community. We always try to locate, or we, as we become aware of families in our church that are in this need, we include them in it, and then through our partnership with Crestview, uh, Dana works with Kathy down there, and with families that may be in need as well. Some of you have been on the receiving end. How many, if you've been on the receiving end of any kind of generosity, then you know what a blessing that is. And so we do this through our adopt, with adoptive families. We do it through our grow groups. Uh, if you're not part of a grow group, you can still participate. We, for our Christmas dinner, we need desserts. We cater in a really nice meal form, and we have them gather in our multi-purpose room, and we kind of meet and greet them, and uh, just trying to introduce them to who we are as a church here at LifeBridge and give them their Christmas gifts. And it, it's, I'm t- I've been a part of it every year, and my, it, it is an awesome thing to see their eyes and their heart just kind of open up after a, few, a while, especially when you give them these big trash bags of gifts and, and they begin to open them up. They, they just melt them is what it does. It, it takes away all the barriers. And it's such a blessing. They, 
They're, they're, many of them are appreciative and, and sincerely express that. And so it's a, it's a wonderful opportunity for our church. And so our grow groups, you're going to be asked, your group leaders are already going to be talking to you, hey, what can you contribute to this? What kind of finances? Can you give $5? Can you give 20 Some of you may be able to give 50 or 100 and you put it into a pot, and each grow group goes and it's Christmas shopping, wraps these gifts, and brings them. But we also have another opportunity in which to practice this, and that's through our Christmas offering. And every year we've done this for several years, our Christmas offering is what funds our benevolence ministry that helps people in need, both in our church and in our community through our partnership with Crestview. And uh, some of you have been the recipients of that, and you know what it's like. You know what a blessing it is. And so it's a great opportunity uh, for us to show Christ in these two things coming up here at the Christmas season. I encourage you to think through it, pray about it, um, and consider what God would lead you to, to give in participation. A lifestyle of generosity is the best investment that we can make as Christ followers. In fact, this is interesting. Do you realize Paul actually, this, this will blow you away. Paul actually encourages us to amass a fortune in heavenly treasure. When he writes in verse 19, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. Where earthly treasure is concerned, the old saying is true, you can't take it with you. But when it comes to spiritual capital, you can do what? You can send it on ahead. And when Paul talks about the kind of treasure that will make a good foundation for the time to come, what he has in mind is the treasure of eternal life. Listen, the one thing money cannot buy you is eternal life. Earthly riches have no life-giving power. But anyone who is generous out of gratitude to God for the salvation they have in Jesus Christ by faith has already begun to enter into, Paul says, the joy of eternal life. So I say it again. Riches can't buy you heaven. But riches can keep you from it. Riches can replace God in your life. It can rob you. And so here's the question to consider. Is Jesus your treasure or your trust, or is it riches? Listen, don't let riches stand in the way of your relationship with God in eternal life in Jesus. Remember what God said to the rich man in Luke 12. You fool! This very night your life will be demanded back from you, but who will get what you have prepared for yourself? So it is with the one. In other words, Jesus is making application now to us. So it is to the one who stores up riches for himself, but is not rich toward God. My challenge this morning to you, my question is simple. Are you being robbed by your riches? Or are you rich toward God? And the question is, 
Or the challenge is, live like God is gain. Live like God is great gain in your life. Live simply. Give richly and thrive eternally. Don't get robbed by riches. Don't believe the lie, I am what I have. Instead, live counterculture and embrace the identity, I am what? I am rich toward God. And may you leave here today with your hope fixed on the wonderful truth in 2 Corinthians 8-9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that by His poverty you might become rich. In Christ, you are rich. Let's pray. Lord, we come because of your grace, because of your Son, Jesus Christ, we come. And we come humbly, we come needy, we come needing your mercy and your grace. And Lord, we come expecting you to work in our hearts through your word. And so Lord, help us to see ourselves in the truths of what you've given here this morning. Lord, give us the strength, the grace, help us to embrace the truth of what we have seen here. Help us to be rich toward you and to be free from the desire and craving of riches. As we respond here this morning, as the music is played, will you respond? This is your opportunity to go to the Lord in prayer, confess, repent, ask for his grace and mercy as need be.